0: Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Guy Collander. 190 years ago, our founder, George Birkbeck, said, now is the time for the universal benefits of the blessings of knowledge. His words are as true today as they were in 1823, and Birkbeck continues to offer innovative opportunities to learn and engage in debate. Our latest initiative is B Birkbeck, a membership scheme to share our research and promote discussion. Bryony Merritt finds out more from Professor Miriam Zukas, the Executive Dean of Birkbeck School of Social Sciences, History and Philosophy, and tells you how you can sign up. But first, we turn our attention to football and match-fixing, which hit the headlines recently. On 4th of February, the European police agency Europol announced its suspicions about the results of hundreds of games. Dr Andy Harvey of the Birkbeck Sport Business Centre is carrying out research on match fixing in The Beautiful Game, and he is here to tell us more about the illegal practice. Andy, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Guy. Firstly, Rob Wainwright, director of Europol, said the investigation uncovered match fixing activity on a scale we have not seen before.
1: How big is the problem? This phenomenon is, not, is nothing new. Uh, what is new, of course, is just the sheer scale. Uh, and the global reach now that, uh, this, that this problem uh, uh, suggests. Uh, and Europol uh, has said that something like 600 matches are suspect worldwide, over 300 in Europe. Uh, it has to be said, though, that as the, that day unraveled and they made their statement, that as we tried to find more details of precisely what games they are talking about, then uh, they weren't quite as forthcoming as as we might have hoped. Also, from those within the game, I, I spoke to colleagues in international football uh, on the day the Europol made its statement. And their view was that, well, this is something we, we knew this is the sort of scale that they were looking at. And so I think from within the game, regrettably, uh, the, the Europol statement did not come as a great surprise. Uh, but clearly, uh, if if half the allegations they've made turn out to be accurate, then clearly world football has a big problem because they were suggesting that that games have been fixed all the way from South America across the African continent into Europe, and of course into Asia as well. So this is this is this is this is as Michel Platini has said of, at, at UEFA, this is the biggest uh, biggest issue facing professional football today. And what type of matches are we talking about? What standard? Well, it, it really ranges from the whole from from throughout the leagues. Uh, Guy, uh, the majority they're talking about are the lower leagues particularly in Europe, the, the the European lower leagues. And uh they of course tend to be slightly easier to fix because the players and the officials don't earn as much money or if they earn anything at all and therefore might be more vulnerable. Uh, but uh what was perhaps shocking in the in uh, the Europol statement was that they suggest at least one Champions League match that had been played in England had been fixed, although they declined to say which one, although we think it's the one that involves in, involving uh Liverpool. Uh, but uh, there's there's no there's no confirmation of that, and they suggest that World Cup qualifiers have been fixed. And what sort of fixing are we talking about? Because presumably it's much harder in football than it is, say, in cricket. Sure. Well, again, this is a, this is one of the com- one of the complexities of this of the problem. Uh, when we say match fixing, we tend to talk we really think about more about integrity in sport. That uh, although there is some there's some evidence of some games where actual results have been fixed. Uh, or actual scorelines have been fixed. Uh, the scope and complexity of online betting now and in-game betting means that there could be p- specific incidents in a, in a game that might be fixed, such as uh, how many yellow cards or or who has the first throw-in or uh, who who's who, who takes a penalty kick. So there there's a, there's there's a this is one of the problems is the fact that uh, that that it's not necessarily easy to actually to actually find out what's been fixed because uh, with so many events that can take p- take place inside a game and so many of those events can be bet upon in on different markets particularly the the, the illegal gambling markets in Asia that it's, that it's difficult to, to quite know precisely uh, what the, what the scale is and precisely what's being fixed but let' us be clear that there's there, there is evidence that there is there are there are some games where Europol is saying actual results have been fixed and at quite a senior level. And what are the main causes of match fixing? Again, I think these are very these are there multiple causes depending really on what you're talking about in uh, Romania, for example, Croatia and Slovenia, for example. That there's a lot of evidence of players not being paid wages on time, or sometimes not being paid wages at all. Uh, of players being forced to train alone if they if if, if they try to uh, report this to, to 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 their trade union. Uh, so there's there's evidence of, of of low wages, intimidation and bullying, and it's these these are sorts of conditions which might lead a, pl- a player or a number of players to be able to get, become involved in match fixing. Of course, the one thing is you suggested that it's it's not really possible for a single player to to influence a result of a match, although uh, potentially a goalkeeper can, and that was of course the case with the the, Bruce, the alleged Bruce Grobola incident. Uh, so but so multiple causes. Uh the involvement of now international criminal gangs suggest that uh these emanate from Singapore and, and the Far East, where they were involved in match fixing their own leagues for many, many years. But uh they turned their attentions to the European leagues because of the greater amount of money that's bet on the on the markets and the sheer scale of the leagues. Uh, uh, local criminal gangs who might infiltrate clubs. Uh, part of the problem of this is that sometimes some of the club's directors and owners are actually part and parcel of criminal gangs themselves. Uh, vulnerability of players who may not have been paid wages or um, may, may have had their wages p- p- paid late. Uh, and uh, perhaps a culture of uh, within, within, within football of uh, being somewhat outside normal legal regulation football's always wanted to regulate itself even now fifa and the uefa would prefer this 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 malpractice to be something football uh dealt with itself i don't think they're going to have that chance because uh, the the history of self regulation has not been particularly uh, fantastic uh so so and this is one of the problems i think that the, the causes are complex and therefore the solutions need to be sophisticated
0: and you're addressing some of these challenges in your new project about match fixing called Don't Fix It what research
1: will you be undertaking as part of this work i'm going to i'm going to interview key informants from across europe uh, from uefa integrity at uefa and the football association here as well as uh, officials from the players associations as i want to be able to get a Deeper understands I can from those involved in the game as to what what they see to be the key problems, but I think the most unique part of this research and it's something I don't think any other researchers have been able to do so far, including Declan Hill, who's who's been at for the forefront of this, is to do some is to do some case studies with actual players who have, be, have either been approached or have been involved in match fixing, uh, and I'm hoping that that through this 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 process of developing case studies we'll be able to get uh, a much more detailed look at the actual processes who's involved what's said how is it said what are the motivations what are the what, what are the what, what are the, uh, uh, psych- the the social conditions uh, employment conditions what are the personal uh, you know conditions that that lead someone to say okay I will do that. Well, my, my starting point is that no one starts to play football professionally with a view to match fix so there has to be a, a process that that's gone through. That then leads to that 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 result. So that's really what I'm going to be trying to do. And that will be across eight countries in Europe. So what are the countries that
0: you'll be looking at as part of the investigation?
1: Okay, the countries that we're we we're, we're going to be looking at that UK, England, and Scotland. Well, we don't think there's been a big problem of match fixing in this country, but there have been but there have been small examples. Uh, Italy are. In, in parts of the project and we hope the italian partners will be able to shed some significant light on match fixing because they're, they're coming out if you like of their match fixing scandal of the of the mid no, mid 2000s uh and they're, and they're doing some quite interesting work to try to put that behind them uh no one's suggesting that they've completely cracked the problem yet but uh but the, but they all have some great insights as to how that situation that involved Juventus, for example, being as you know being being stripped of its uh, of its titles in uh, bec- because of uh, match fixing. Uh, we'll also be looking in, at some of the Eastern European countries, and uh, particularly Slovenia, where there's a very good uh, very good tra- players' association there. And uh, Dejan, the, the 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 general secretary of that union, has got some fantastic contacts in throughout the rest of Eastern Europe, and so he'll be leading on uh, obtaining case studies from that part of the world. And we'll also be looking at Finland and Norway, which you wouldn't think that they'd be involved in match-fixing, but there have been match-fixing scandals there involving uh, Singapore uh, criminals. Uh, so, and, and they're also uh, looking at some, in, some innovative ways which they can help players to resist becoming involved.
0: And the research aims to address match-fixing by leading to education programmes and uh, practical solutions. What recommendations can we expect to see as a result?
1: So I think we need to develop a code of conduct, and uh, and this is being developed between Pro and UEFA. I think this code of conduct has to to then be the starting point of an education programme, which every player becomes aware of. And I think also we have to be able to provide a safe means by which players can report suspicions. The existing hotlines simply don't work. Nobody uses them because nobody trusts them, that that they're anonymous. Similarly uh the evidence is that that players who have blown the whistle in the past are often then victimized themselves you know they of course there's so many people involved particularly maybe officials of their club that uh that blowing the whistle has in fact led to led to players rather than being lauded as heroes but as being 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 cast out and uh, un, not regarded as trustworthy so we have to find some some ways by which we can give players and officials and indeed anyone else uh, that the tools by which they feel that they have to, they feel able to be able to uh, make make public or at least to, at least to make clear to their associations any concerns they've got, and the fact that they'll they'll feel confident that this will be treated confidentially and that they will not suffer as a result. And the
0: research has high-profile backers. You've already mentioned FIFPRO, UEFA, and the European Commission that's funding the research. So it's likely to be taken seriously when it comes out.
1: Certainly hope so. That you know, they, that this is one of the f- f- a few times that UEFA, the governing body of Europe, uh, and FIFPRO, the, uh, the the World Footballers' Union, uh, are working very closely together. I think both parties see it as being a fundamental threat to the integrity of the game. Uh, I think that uh, from the FIFPRO side, it, there's a there's a there's a strong desire to make sure that players aren't seen as scapegoats, as as as, as but but uh, as. Part and parcel of yes the problem, but alongside a whole lot of other actors and a whole lot of other problems. Uh, the fact that uh, that UEFA uh, have appointed an integrity officer to be part of the uh, you know the, of, the, of the of the project team, I think, is good news. Uh, and I think the fact that the European Commission uh, has funded it uh, suggests to me that that the results, of the research, uh, the education programmes that are that are piloted uh, through this particular project. Uh, should be, can then be developed and rolled out in the future across the football family in Europe.
0: Dr Andy Harvey, thank you for sharing your insights and good luck with your research.
1: Thanks Guy.
2: Professor Miriam Zukas is Executive Dean of the School of Social Sciences, History and Philosophy. She is also leading the development of an exciting new membership scheme called B. Birkbeck. Professor Zukas. What was the motivation for the development of the new b membership scheme? Well, the deans of the five schools in the college were away overnight for a two-day development programme. And we were thinking very hard about our students and our potential students. And we realised as we were thinking that there were lots and lots of people who were really interested in what Birkbeck was up to, really interested in our academics and um, the product of our academic research and teaching, but who didn't want to study for a qualification. And when we thought about it, we thought it would be fantastic to invent a new membership scheme. So we tried to think quite hard about what that membership scheme might entail, Um, And we took it to the college a a month later to say, we think that this is a good idea. And our colleagues on the senior management team were all very enthusiastic about it. So we then took it to the governors, and they were so enthusiastic that they're fighting to become the first members. And that was the birth of the Be Back Back scheme. So I've been working on it with colleagues for about the last 18 months, and we're about to launch and what will membership of b Quebec include? People will be able to sign up for three levels of membership, uh, gold, silver and bronze. Bronze membership, which is the, the um, I guess, least uh, committed in terms of money, will be from £5 a month. And people will have access to a number of things through, through that membership. First of all, there'll be a series of special lectures which only members will be able to attend. Second, we hope that members will have access to the really wide range of events that we offer at Birkbeck, which are really showcasing our research and aspects of our teaching. And third, they will also have access to some partnership events, which we're planning at the moment, where our partners, who will be cultural organisations in London, and us will be organising um, one-off weekends or days on very special subjects. People will have to pay an additional fee for that, but only members of Birkbeck and the partner organisation will be able to attend those. At this stage, are you able to give us any more details about what the series of lectures will look like during the first year? We're really thinking very hard about what might be appropriate for the people who come to Burtbeck. And so uh, we decided that we needed to reflect on the fact that we were 190 years old. We were born in 1823, and so this year in 2013, that makes us 190. We were born out of controversy. Organisations like ours, that wanted to educate working men and women, were seen as highly controversial because, of course, Britain, London particularly, was highly, highly classed and uh, the education of the working man and woman was seen somehow as if they would have ideas beyond their station. And we think that's a really good thing, of course. So we chose the theme of controversy, and our six lectures will all be controversial topics. The first person to give the lecture will be the master of Birkbeck, Professor David Lutchman, who's going to be talking about controversies around genetics and DNA. And the other five lectures come from each of the five schools so we'll have a a controversy in my school for example Um, the lecture will be given by Professor Joanna Burke uh, on a particular historical controversy. The others are all focused on particular controversies in law, arts, business economics and informatics and science. And when will the scheme officially be launching? website is open for membership. So I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you'll think about becoming a member. Great. Thank you very much. To find out more about B Birkbeck and to become a member, visit www.bbk.ac.uk slash Birkbeck.
0: And that brings us to the end of this podcast. For more information about Birkbeck's news, events and courses, please visit www.bbk.ac.uk.